Hello and welcome to this week's Intelligence Squared podcast with me, Farah Jassat. This week's episode features the Dutch historian and political scientist Rutger Bregman in conversation with the New Statesman's Henan Lewis. You might recognize Rutger from a speech he did at Davos, which recently went viral, where he called for higher taxes on the rich. In this podcast, they discuss climate change, universal basic income, and Rutger's solutions for how to save capitalism. And for those of you in London this weekend, on Sunday the 7th of April, Intelligence Squared is holding a live podcast recording of our new series, How I Found My Voice. The BBC's Razia Iqbal will be in conversation with Tracy Emin, one of Britain's most famous contemporary artists. This event will be part of a larger podcast festival featuring all sorts of political podcasts, including Brexitcast, Romaniacs and Dellingpod. To buy tickets and for more details, go to podcastlive.com. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Hello, I'm Helen Lewis, Associate Editor at The New Statesman. Welcome to this week's Intelligence Squared podcast. You can sign up for regular updates about podcasts and other events at intelligencesquared.com. I'm here with Rutger Bregman, historian and author of Utopia for Realists. Hello, Rutger. Hello, it's great to be here. I have your bright orange book in front <laughs> of me. Um, let's start with a very simple one, mm-hmm. which I'm sure uh, to just get us started. Why is it important to talk about utopia? Well, very simple, really. Um, every milestone of civilization was once a utopian fantasy. So progress always starts, you know, in the form of utopia, an impossible dream, whether we talk about the end of slavery or democracy or equal rights for men and women. Uh, I think we just need those utopian visions if we want progress. Okay, so my, so my, all the way through this book, which I really enjoyed, my big problem with it is mm-hmm. you always talk about the facts as if the facts matter. And I sometimes wonder that the problem is that the facts actually don't matter in politics. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think you make a, a really great case for, you know, a much shorter working week, for universal basic income, for uh, open borders. And all of those are based around saying, look, an ec- I can make an economic case that these will lead to greater happiness, greater productivity, all of that. But the problem is that voters don't, don't we know, follow mm-hmm. those lines. We're mm-hmm. about to presumably leave the European Union here in this country. And every economist, you know, apart from one that I can think of, said that will make Britain poorer, it will mm-hmm. make people poorer. And, and that did not matter, that mm-hmm. argument did not land. So, so for you, where, you know, is, where does it go next after saying, I can build this amazing case? How do you convince people of the case? Well, I would absolutely agree that facts are not enough, right? Um, it's actually interesting. I've got one story in the book in the second chapter about this very small experiment with uh, 13 homeless men in London in, uh, a couple of years ago. They gave them £3,000 and they were completely free for themselves, you know, to decide for themselves uh, what to spend it on. It turned out to be quite effective. You know, nine of the, the seven of the 30 men had a roof above their head. Two more applied for housing after a year. Found out that the experiment actually saved money. So very counterintuitive finding, right? You give money to the homeless and it actually works. Um, so the interesting thing actually is that um, I've been now at four or five birthday parties. And, uh, you know, you know how it works, right? You you. Just go to the kitchen and you start to- talking to someone you don't know. And they're like, uh, so what do you do? And I say, I'm a writer. I say, oh, so what do you write for? I say, the, the correspondent, the Dutch online journalism platform. They say, oh, so what do you write about? Well, basic income. Oh, oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. So have you ever heard of this experiment that they did in London? <laughs> you know, it's fascinating. You should look it up. And I've always thought that's interesting, that people forget every- everything. They don't remember your name. They don't remember that the- they read your article. But they do remember that one story, right? So what I try to do in the book is sort of to combine these compelling stories with, you know, the more boring research uh, that actually shows that this works. Because to be honest, you know, this story about 13 homeless men in London is 
probably scientifically the weakest argument in my whole book, but everyone remembers it. Right. But I mean, that in itself does slightly worry me because I remember Malcolm Gladwell of The New Yorker wrote a piece called Million Dollar Murray. Oh, it must be over a decade yeah. ago now, which was yeah. exactly the same premise, yeah. right? It was a guy who was having all these emergency interventions. They kept taking him into hospital. And they said, you know, you could put this, you know, in 10 years, this guy's cost this state a million dollars. And you could put him and give him a butler. Yeah. And, and he would cost less. And my worry about that is, you know, I, I guess you have to be a believer in, in incrementalism, right? And in that you're just chipping away at stuff mm-hmm. with these stories. Yeah. And actually, the whole movement that evolved out of this, you know, out of this insight called Housing First, is huge, you know, from Australia to Canada, from the US. Even I've got one story in the book about a conservative Republican uh, in Utah, you know, a very conservative state, who saw the numbers and thought, you know what, we're just going to do a very different approach. And they started handing out basically free apartments to the homeless and saved a lot of money in the long run. So that's what I'm trying to do in this book as well, is to use different kind of arguments and different language to defend progressive ideals. You know, people on the left often use the language of care and of justice. And sure, that's important. And, and there's a certain part of the population that is receptive to that kind of language. But it's not enough to win elections. Uh, you need to uh, use other arguments as well. For example, uh, if you don't have a heart, you still have a wallet. This makes financial sense. It's one of the things that I like most about the book, actually, because I, I got a sense that you were writing from the broad left, but then there's a bit when you say, you know, capitalism has been a huge engine of productivity. And you mm-hmm. write about the fact that we are now far less poor than we were 200 years ago. You know, um, you know that people's life expectancy has increased, their, you know, the productivity has increased. All of these things that are attributable to capitalism, where I think the left often has a problem with, with saying that, because it's implied that if you say anything nice about capitalism, you've yeah. basically signed up to saying, and sweatshops are okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's incredibly frustrating as well. Um, and especially so in the US and the UK, it seems to me that if people are on the left, they automatically want them to, to call themselves a socialist or a communist or whatever. This whole debate about capitalism versus socialism seems really ridiculous to me, right? Uh, I mean, you have this thing, thing called social democracy, right? All these policies that are hugely popular, like universal health care, quality public education, universal child care, higher, higher taxes on the rich, you know, all these poli- uh, policies that the vast majority of the population actually really likes that you can win elections with and that we don't have right now i mean why can't you just be a social democrat well yeah i mean that's a question i ask myself quite quite a lot but i think there is um a feeling that those solutions are quite technocratic they're quite boring they're tinkering around the edges I and think also, it's actually quite radical, right? Well, now, I know, to be a I, I mean, social democrat, isn't it? You, well, you wouldn't get any disagreement from me, but I'm just saying that that's the pushback that I get all the time. It's actually, mm. and it f- feels to me fundamentally, what people, most people want at the moment, is a culture war. They want to argue about what words we use, mm. and what identity groups we have, and you know, is flying the St George flag racist? Is you know, yeah. are gollywogs racist? Because actually, policy is quite hard and quite demanding to get. And one of the things that you do, I think, very nicely in the book, is just say if you can't explain it to a twelve year old. Like, it's your fault. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> then you're you're failing, and I think that is something that the left particularly is prone to: is this idea that you know if you if it's too simple, that means that normal people can get it, and therefore you're not special. You're not a kind of priesthood anymore. That's true. That's true. But also, I mean, many of these progressive ideas can be really exciting. I mean, just talk about the rise of someone like Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. One of the most exciting things that has happened in the past couple of years. Um, talking about a green new deal. You know, connecting it really nicely with American history um, and, uh, you know, making sure we meet this challenge of, you know, that we need this massive transformation of the economy. We, we got to do things that we've never done before in peacetime, right? 
uh, moving in just say two decades to a zero emissions economy. Um, that's pretty radical. It's quite exciting, and it's easy to explain. See, this is what I like about talking to you because you say that's quite exciting. But whereas I, whenever I think about climate change, I think, oh my god, oncoming horror that will you know nuke every other political discussion. <laughs> you know, and 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 all there will be is a kind of undignified and horrible scrabble for resources in the rich parts of the world, huge migration from the poor parts of the world, more fences going up, more borders going up, you know, more people kind of feeling they can't be generous because they need to just cling on to what they have. But make me me feel better about climate change. One of the best things about climate change is that if, for example, you're being interviewed by, say, a centrist or a moderate uh, moderate journalist who's like, no, 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 we just got to tinker a bit around the edges. You can just say climate change. And then it's like, oh, shit, yeah, I can't deny that. I don't want to be a denier, you know, I don't want to go against science. You, it's not enough, right? You, you have to do things, as I said, that have never been done before uh, in peacetime, um, both, you know, from a carbon tax, those kind of policies, but also a much more ambitious industri- industrial policy. Um, we've got so many really smart people right now basically wasting their lives in finance uh, or in Silicon Valley trying to let people click more on ads. So many smart people basically not contributing to the common good. And it's not me saying that it, it's people themselves saying it. Right, you have that. Is we it can't an- afford that. Antonio Garcia Marquez from Chaos Monkey saying, you know, the best minds of my generation are getting people to click on Facebook ads yeah. and are sucking the best, brightest maths graduates and engineers into this money-making Exactly. Machine. And it makes them depressed. So they do that for 10 or 20 years and then they have a midlife crisis and then they, I don't know, paint or become an organic farmer the rest of their lives. And I'm just saying, well, let's move to a society where people can immediately do what they actually care about uh, and contribute. That is, yeah, I think one of the things, I, again, I think is interesting about the book is I wonder whether or not there is a kind of, you have to bring morals more into the argument as well as mm-hmm. economics. Because, you know, in, in some ways, having a job that pays a lot of money is our is now our kind of highest status thing to do, mm-hmm. not necessarily having a job that contributes. And you write about someone who's, a, you know, someone saying, I think a stockbroker or someone saying, I have a friend who's a cancer specialist and they earn far less mm-hmm. than I do. And that mm-hmm. that sort of shouldn't shouldn't be right but yeah. when money is the the defining metric of society that is an inevitable outcome yeah well it's really about redefining certain central concepts like what is work who are the real wealth creators what is progress uh, what does a meritocracy look like right so i think a meritocracy should be a society where people who contribute the most uh get the highest salaries so in many cases bin men and women should earn more money than many bankers, right? I think that actually in a just society, many bankers right now would earn a negative salary because they take more than they give, right? And if you don't believe me, just, I mean, this is very mainstream opinion among economists. You just read reports from the International Monetary Fund on, you know, the devastating effects when finance becomes too big, as happened in this country. Mm. (laughs) Um, You know, you just uh, lose a lot from that. Um, And that's, that's really what I'm trying to do. Uh, this is also one of the reasons why I don't like like it when people immediately want to call, call themselves a communist or a socialist. I'm like, no, you, you want to be a realist. You just want to take these words and give them a different meaning. Right. I think that's got a bad history in this country because of the rhetoric of new labor in the 1990s, mm. where Tony Blair said, you know, I'm interested in what works. And I think yeah. it's it's a perfectly great uh, thing to aspire to, and actually, you know, I would argue that that government did, a, you know, things like bank holidays, you know, the right to roam, abolishing most of the hereditary peers in the House of Lords. You know, there are lots of incredibly progressive things that government did, mm-hmm. but it's kind of it's now seen as not sufficiently radical. I think mm-hmm. probably because 
again, it's the sort of weird telescoping of history, right? You always you, you compare it with now mm-hmm. rather than compare it with nine, what the country looked like in 1997 when it, when it came in. And one of the things I got quite strongly from your book is that, you know, um, progress kind of erases the struggle before it, right? Um, it, it's well known that things like Medicaid, and once you give people these universal health benefits, they don't want to go back. They're incredibly popular once yeah. you've got them. So yeah. right-wing politicians are very frightened of them because they know that once people have had a taste... Yeah. It's not. You know. It's a Trojan horse, you know. It's the same. It's probably the same with universal basic income. Uh, it's going to be such a popular policy. Actually, there's one place in the world that has a small basic income, Alaska. Uh, they started this program in the 70s. They funded from uh, oil money, basically. It was actually a Republican governor, Jay Hammond, uh, who said, you know what, the oil in the ground should be, the, you know, the property of everyone. And they started uh, basically handing out dividends to everyone who's lived at least a year in Alaska. It's uh, around $2,000, uh, but adds up to 8000 you know, in a family of four. So it's, it really makes a substantial difference. And it's so popular, you know, uh, from the left to the right. As soon as you, you know, even suggest abolishing it, as a politician in Alaska, your career is finished. I think universal basic income is a really fascinating example because it has, as you say in the book, become... You know, people are now doing tests of it all over the place. I was in Finland a couple of years ago, which mm-hmm. ran that a, a pilot mm-hmm. study. Um, Glasgow's been talking about doing it. Um, as you mentioned, the Swiss had a referendum on it and decided not to go with it. But like, it, as as a t- an idea whose kind of time has come, it does seem to be more more interesting. My concern about it is always that where do you put the level? Because you kind of can't put the level at a level that would pe- that you know that would replace a, an income essentially, mm-hmm. right? Like actually a genuine income. And also, I'm, I'm from a kind of feminist perspective. I'm also uneasy about a benefit system which treats a single man the same as a single mother. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, those you know, we recognise that those two need different levels of, of state support. Mm-hmm. But sell it, sell it to me. Well, the, the first thing I should say is that a basic income, a guaranteed basic income, should just be a supplement to the welfare state as we have it now. You know, it's just one of the many things that we need. Uh, you know, uh, we also need quality public education, good uh, childcare and all those things, right? Um, then the other thing is obviously that we shouldn't only think about uh, how much it will cost, but also how, you know, how many savings it will deliver, you know? There's quite some evidence from experiments around the globe uh, that healthcare costs could go down, crime goes down, kids do better in school, etc. I really th- think that it could be an investment that, pays for itself in the long run. This is another way that I think progressives should become better at, at, you know, selling their ideas uh, as, you know, uh, financially sound ideas, you know, good investments. Yeah, well, that's how I suppose that our social democratic government would always, they would never talk about government spending. Gordon Brown would always talk about investment. I'm investing in schools, right? Mm -hmm. The idea that you then kind of pay it off afterwards. It's quite an important rhetorical shift. Um, While I'm on feminism, one of the things I find most mind-blowing um, and I really love it when a book kind of reframes how you think about something, mm-hmm. was this idea that the way that GDP works, gross, mm-hmm. domestic, um, gross domestic product, this idea about measuring the economy, is fundamentally completely flawed. And there are other books that have talked about this too. But the idea that we focus so much on the bits of the economy that can be optimised, um, and that's kind of seen as being efficiency, whereas the things that can't be, like wiping someone's bottom can't be optimised beyond mm-hmm. a certain level, like the human skills... And therefore, we tend to see them as inefficient rather than seeing exactly. them as, as yeah. valuable. And to me, that was one of those moments where you kind of go, 
that's fascinating because yeah. there has been a movement. I saw someone from the FT saying we shouldn't talk about traditionally feminine caring jobs. We should talk about robot proof jobs. Mm. There are some things that you mm. just won't, like a robot won't be yeah, able exactly. to do. And this is, this is actually one of the ironies of progress is that when certain parts of the economy become more efficient, like your farms and your factories, you know, those parts of the economy that can be automated, that means that the other parts of the economy, like say education or healthcare, become more expensive relative to the, you know, to farms and factories. So it is only right that when our technology gets more advanced, we start paying more and more for healthcare and education. You know, that's completely yeah. normal. But all this time, it's being treated as a problem. And they want to keep costs stable, etc. Oh, we're spending 10% of GDP on healthcare now. It's going up to 11%. No, that's the point. The point of progress is that you start spending more and more on those kind of things that you can't easily automate. Because the, the whole quality of, of, of the product or service itself is, is defined by the inefficiency of it, right? Good education is inefficient. Uh, good healthcare is inefficient. You know, you take the time to have a proper conversation with your client or patient or whatever. Um, that's the whole point. But all this time, you know, we treat the whole economy as if it's some kind of factory that needs to become more and more efficient. Oh, yeah, I think that's definitely true. I mean, it, you mentioned in the book about the kind of um, housework and caring labour, you know, not being counted in GDP statistics and how huge a difference that that makes. Yeah. But it is also essentially a huge subsidy to capitalism from mostly women, right? That actually childcare, you can look at as training the workers of the future, yeah. paying the pensions of the future. All this stuff that, you know, capitalism is supposed to be relentlessly yeah. efficient. It relies yeah. on huge bungs to prop it up that are not factored into its calculations. Yeah. Of course, it's a very flattering picture for capitalism. Mm -hmm. And then if you delve into the history of a concept like uh, like GDP, there's a fantastic book that was written by uh, Diane Coyle, a uh, British, she's a British uh, mm -hmm. economist. Uh, GDP, it's got an affectionate history, I believe. And she explains in that book that, you know, the reason that this work is not included, like housework, there's no scientific reason for it. You know, you could perfectly make an estimate of how much time people are spending to caring for their kids and what the economic value is. You know, we do many of those kind of things. You know, we, we try to estimate the value of, say, the black market, for example. There was some point actually in the 90s when Italy started including the mafia uh, in their GDP numbers and they were suddenly had a higher GDP than, uh, than the UK and they were really happy about that. <laughs> uh, now, so you, you can do that, but why didn't they do that? Wow, all these economists were men. Mm. They were like they took it for granted. They didn't see it as work. So it was an ideological reason. Um, I think that's, that's amazing about this whole history of GDP that we... All, all the time we use this number, you know, in, in journalism, in politics, is G GDP up, is it down? And we don't realize that actually it was invented by a guy, a Russian economist, Simon Kuznets, who said in the 30s that we should never use it as a measure of progress, never, ever use it because, uh, you know, uh, it's just a terrible tool for that. And at least if we do, then subtract all spending on the military, on advertising and, um, and uh, other industries that he didn't really like. Well, I think advertising is an interesting one. So I had a conversation with um, Robert Skidelsky, the economist, biographer of John Maynard Keynes, mm -hmm. um, which talked about the four-day week a couple of weeks ago. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he was talking about the fact, which, again, you, you also write about in the book, that you can essentially have, you know, more and more consumption. Uh, and that is one of the things that you can do if you have higher, you know, wages, you can have higher quality of life, or you can just simply kind of spend more and more stuff. Yeah. And actually, you know, it's quite a radical proposition to make to say, maybe we should just buy less stuff. And the, and the industry devoted to making us 
feel there's something wrong with our lives and that the answer to that is buying stuff yeah. is actually an incredibly pernicious and, yeah. and bad one. Well, again, what I would like to do is to redefine the words, right? So take the word consumerism. Uh, many people now are against growth or, you know, or against consumerism. I would say, you know what? Growth is a wonderful word. Kids grow, plants grow. No, I mean, we should be against the growth of BS, right? Of all that crap that we don't need to impress people we don't like. Uh, we need less of that. Uh, but we can also consume our wealth in a different way so that we have growth of leisure, growth of meaning, you know. Um, that's sort of the kind of language that I would like to use around it. I think leisure is a really hard thing to get to grips with because actually, you know, we've had on these enormous gains of productivity and but people are just spending time in the office or wherever it is that they work mm -hmm. for no reason. There's an almost a kind of, I don't know where, where it comes from, a kind of fear of, of free time. Mm -hmm. And it's actually become a a status symbol to be incredibly busy. Yeah. And that's a very odd, and, yeah. but, but I, I totally feel the lure of that mindset yourself. It's status, it's business, it's yeah. important. You know, you're, you're needed, which I guess yeah. most people want to be needed. You know, this whole modern economy of people sitting in jobs, you know, writing reports no one's ever going to read and sending emails to other people they don't really like. It always makes me think of a phenomenon in psychology, which they call pluralistic ignorance. Um, so the idea is you've experienced this many times. Um, let's say you're in a park and you're with five other people and you're you're walking down a path. And at some point someone says, does anyone know where we're actually going? And everyone's like, I thought you know that. I thought, you, and, and it turns out no one's in charge. I think that with this whole industry of socially useless jobs, it, often the same thing is happening within companies. Everyone's like, there must be some purpose for this meeting, right? But because we're having this meeting, right? There must be some purpose while we're making this product or whatever. But, you know, privately, people are all thinking, like, what, what is this? Well, there, there must be some purpose. Um, and what you need in those situations is the, just, a, just a few people, sometimes only one person who says, you know what? This is nonsense. Let's stop it. And then everyone's like, yeah, that was, I was, uh, yeah. what I was thinking all this time. Oh, yeah, I think that's the kind of mass meeting insurrection would be very good. I'm here with Rutger Bregman, and the book is Utopia for Realists. We'll be back in a moment. Intelligence Squared is a tight-knit team doing big things, and it means we're always looking for tools that can help streamline managing tasks. That's why I want to talk to you for a minute about NetSuite. NetSuite provides cloud-based software to get things moving. Maybe your business has been humming, but you can feel things are falling behind a little bit. Or perhaps your team is getting snowed with manual tasks and closing those books is taking forever. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers. 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, allowing them to close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. It means you can manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. It's everything you need to grow all in one place. NetSuite is now making an unprecedented offer to make more of that kind of thing possible. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com squared. I'm here with Rutger Bregman, whose book Utopia for Realists is out now and is a Sunday Times bestseller. Um, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the one bit of your book that I I paused on. Mm -hmm. And I think you make an incredibly compelling case. That's very case, British, isn't it? Paused on. 
<laughs> that, what does it mean? <laughs> like, that I really hate it. <laughs> no, I didn't really hate it. I just think I disagree with you, but I'm open to being convinced. So I think universal basic income, uh, you know, there are questions about the level of it, but I think certainly as a poli- there's a policy case for developing it. Mm-hmm. Four-day week or shorter working week generally, uh, to my mind, the evidence is, is in on that. You don't get a drop in productivity. People take mm-hmm. fewer sick days. You know, it, and, and seem to enjoy their their lives more. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm, I'm. You know, you've won me over completely on on that one. Um, but open borders, I think, is really difficult because so many of the things that you talk about uh, here rely on a really, a, to me, a strong state to enforce them. Something like you, you talk about, for example, about you know paternity leave and how important it is, and and how for men to take paternity leave and it changes the dynamic of what it means to be a parent for the mm-hmm. rest of those men's lives. They become more involved with their children. We know that's something that needs to be, to my mind, supported by a state behind it. And the trouble with that is, you know, we, in, well, we'll talk about Davos in a minute. You're talking about tax. You need to have a, some sense of who the policy is, you know, who the sense of who your community is of taxpayers, your mm-hmm. social bounds. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that can work in a way in which people feel that there are just seven, you know, eight billion people on the planet and mm-hmm. there's no allegiance to, to governments, mm-hmm. if you see what I mean. Mm-hmm. That's my... That's my concern about open borders. Mm-hmm. Well, I would agree with you, I think. Um, the idea of open borders is by far the most radical and utopian idea in my book. Like, uh, I mean, basic income, we could easily do that today. It's not economics that's holding us back or technology. And we could have done it in the 70s. Richard Nixon almost did it yeah. in the 70s, actually. Um, but with open borders, that's obviously different. Now, there are a couple of things that are, I think, important to keep in mind. The first thing is that... We talk a lot about mass immigration and, you know, swarms and th- that kind of language that's being used on the right. Actually, if you look at the statistics, 97% of the world population lives in the country in which they were born. And most people like the country in which they live. They don't want to leave. Um, then the second thing is that actually higher walls often make the problem of illegal immigration worse. Um, so if you look at the US-Mexico border, um, in the 60s, there were a lot of you know, immigrants from Mexico to the U.S. who worked there for a couple of years. And most of them, like 85%, they just went back. Um, but then the the border was militarized and it became much more difficult to make the journey from Mexico to the U.S. People still went, still hundreds of thousands of people went, but they didn't go back anymore because they didn't want to make the journey another time. So this is the irony of, of, of higher walls often is that you actually get more illegal immigrants. So in that chapter, what I'm trying to do is not to say, you know, everyone should go everywhere, abolish the nation state, have no allegiance whatsoever. Uh, don't. Uh, I'm actually quite patriotic myself, you know. I, I, yeah. You do come from a very cool country, yeah, to be fair. I love Holland, <laughs> but um, yeah, I think there's a really good case to be made for um, for uh, immigration, especially because it's the most powerful tool we have in the fight against global poverty. And I actually also think it could be part of your your national image, right? Uh, to say that you know we are a country that you know uh, where immigrants played an incredibly important role. Um, so that's what I'm trying to do in that chapter. I think that it's interesting to you know living in London, which is very much a city that says you know I think our slogan is we're open, you know, and there's yeah. lots of campaigns about the idea that this is a place that people you know internal immigration from the rest of the United Kingdom, as well as from other countries, and we're we're open and kind of cosmopolitan. But I do think there probably is something to the argument that that is, to some extent, a a mindset. And some people are much happier with less, less change, Mm -hmm. right? 
that, you know, people like me who've come from, you know, I came from a small city in the Midlands to here, are, are a different kind of person than the person who wanted to stay behind, lived in the same house, lived in the same village that their parents lived in. And those people probably do find change and immigration a lot more yeah. threatening. They don't see it as an opportunity. Yeah. They see it as yeah. a threat. Yeah. And I don't, and you know, I would say our political class and journalist class is dominated by people like me, yeah. not by the people who step one, not least because it's all based in London, right? It fundamentally cannot be dominated by people who stayed in the village where they were born because yeah. they're still there. Yeah. You know, there's a very old theory in uh, psychology that goes back to the 50s, I think. It's called contact theory. And the, the idea is very simple. Um, we tend to be distrustful of people that we haven't met, right? So you see this, uh, we saw this with Brexit, right? A lot of people voting for Brexit, even though they live in communities where there are hardly any immigrants. Uh, but once we actually get to meet people, um, you know, the beginning may be difficult, but it turns out most people are actually pretty nice. So the theory here is just put people in, in contact and then things will be all right. Um, that sounds very nice. Uh, is it true? turns out, yeah. It's true. There's a huge amount of empirical evidence. There's one meta-analysis from a couple of years ago where they had more than 500 studies. Turns out to be one of the most robust theories in, in psychology. Um, it's also true that, you know, really rapid change when a community in just 10 years or something like that, then contact is just not going to do it. So yeah, all these things need to be managed. But in general, I do believe in the power of actually meeting other people. And... Uh, most people tend to be quite nice if you actually get to know them. Right. And that is what the studies in the UK, I think, definitely show is it's not that, you know, places like London and big cities that actually have the most immigration will largely remain. Mm -hmm. um, and But places that have seen the most change will largely yeah. leave the rapidity of, of change and also yeah. places that were not an abundance of, of jobs. I yeah. think that's the yeah. other thing that... Um, you can see that a lot of the appeal of Donald Trump was down to an idea of restoring jobs and restoring a certain kind of masculine pride and white masculine pride through that, right? About yeah. what a job kind of means and where your relative status is comparative to yeah. other people. Yeah. Well, you know probably much more about this than I do, but with with Brexit and, and Trump, I really got the feeling that, you know, if you give people a hammer and and they're yearning for change and they want to break with the status quo, you know, they'll just use it. And uh, and and that I think that's what happened around the referendum here, and also with Trump. You know, it's just that uh, there was no alternative here. Yeah, I think it was interesting. There was polling done around the time of the EU referendum where people said, you know, would you vote Leave if it made you twenty five pounds poorer, if it made you fifty pounds poorer, if it made whatever. And actually, basically, as soon as there was any monetary amount attached to it, people said, oh no, no, I'm not going to. The problem is that they just fundamentally did not believe those mm. economists who were warning them. Which I think is kind of interesting in the light of of your book, you know, that you know, economists have a, a huge image problem. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the good news is that they've changed a lot. I mean, there's been this empirical revolution, basically, in economics. Is that you know, you still sometimes see this book come out about you know how economists believe in their fancy theories, but that's not really the case anymore. It used to be the case, like in the seventies, in the eighties, in the nineties, uh, that they had their grant models that don't predict anything and are actually ideological constructs that basically destroy the social fabric. <laughs> uh, but nowadays, you know, like the top economists that publish in the top journals, they're doing really sound empirical work. And uh, I mean, for example, recently, uh, brilliant economist Alan, Kru Alan Kruger passed away, you know, the American economist. And based on his really rigorous empirical work, 
uh, we found out that actually you can raise the minimum wage quite a bit and it doesn't matter, you know, you don't get less jobs. Um, so I think that it's, it's about time to, uh, to uh, you know, welcome the economists back in, uh, in, the, in the conversation All because right. they're doing a much, much better job right they now. They are, and they don't rely <laughs> so much on kind of homo economicus, you know, this sort of rational man who makes, you know, they are taking into account that people do make decisions on other grounds other than kind of naked self-interest exactly. yeah. in economic terms. The only thing that I would say is that many economists are still too much, um, you know, too much believe in tinkering or, you know, are obsessed with being an incrementalist. Uh, and are not focused enough on things like the power distribution, for example, within society and how that determines wage levels, etc. But also there, there's a change. I mean, you've got the wonderful French eco economists like Thomas Piketty and uh, Emmanuel Suez and I think Gabriel Zucman is French as well. Uh, you know, who did all this great work on tax paradises around the globe. And Esther Duflo, so, uh, right? Who you yeah, say in the book Duflo, has yeah. a strong exactly. French accent, which I just think is unfair for coming from a Dutch person because oh, we all know that you're really brilliant at speaking English, whereas every <laughs> other country in the world is less good at speaking other languages. <laughs> well, she's fantastic. But her work on aid I thought was really interesting because, again, you're talking about, you know, just people knowing what's what's best for them. And actually, there's a theme running through the book about just give just give people money give yeah. poor people money yeah they know best what they what they need to do with it you know and and one of the other things is that you know people are much and people are much, i want to say puritanical but that's not the right word people are much more kind of sober than we kind of think they are right or the mm -hmm. lesson of both helicopter kind of cash in terms of poverty relief or universal basic income or minimum wages is that people don't by and large laze around on benefits, sit on the sofa watching TV, whatever it is. People like to work. People, yeah. strange, you know. Which and they like to save money and they like to spend it on their kids and on education and on housing and yeah. on clothing, you know, on very sensible things. That's It's actually quite boring if you uh, if you look at what people, uh, poor people do with the money that you give to them. It's like very obvious in common sense. Um, I want to talk to you a bit about Davos because you went hugely viral mm -hmm. for saying like, stop talking about philanthropy, let's talk about tax avoidance mm -hmm. uh, how did that go down in the room um well they were not very happy with me uh, um it was a bit of a mixed response actually so you have to imagine that there are obviously lots of journalists there and they're they're not billionaires so they were like Ooh, yep. oh well this is uncomfortable but funny as well and maybe we're clapping uh then the, there's this group of younger people called global shapers and they're like billionaires in the making i guess uh, but not billionaires yet. So they thought it was funny as well, I think. And then you have like the CEOs and the billionaires, etc. And they absolutely didn't like it. So there was one CFO, former CFO from y y Yahoo, who was really angry at me, actually. He said, oh, this was such a one-sided panel. And then I shouted through the room and said, no, this is a one-sided conference. And that made him more angry. Uh, right, because yeah, the th thing is, capitalism <laughs> just doesn't really kind of get to make its case for itself at Davos. Yeah, uh, I mean, his his point was, you know, we've got the lowest unemployment figures, we've got the lowest black unemployment rate, we've got lowest youth unemployment rate. We're doing great. Why don't you understand it? We're awesome. You know, we're living the the age of the greatest innovation ever. You should be grateful for the wonderful work we're doing. And then Winnie Banjama from from Oxfam, she's the exec executive director. She made this brilliant point where she said you're not counting dignity of work you're ca counting exploited people right you're counting the wrong things i thought that was a brilliant line and um yeah just uh, shortly after after that panel i had to leave catch a train flew back to holland 
And I actually felt a little bit bad about my whole intervention because I had used the BS word. And well, we, we do that in Holland all the time. It's considered like, you know, standard language. Um, You're upset because you swore at Davos. Yeah. And <laughs> and, 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 and people were a bit, bit angry at me, obviously. And I thought, hmm, was that really smart of me? But then the Monday after went completely rye one. I was like, yeah. Yeah, I was right. <laughs> but that's kind of classic tone policing, which isn't a phrase I normally particularly like because it gets used in very weak ways. But mm-hmm. it is basically saying if you asked, if you just asked billionaires more nicely to pay some tax, then maybe yeah. they'd have thought about it. And you think, well, you know, you said it in a very straightforward, if blunt way, and they're not going to particularly think yeah. about it. It's this idea that you know, yeah, you know, there's a I can't remember if it's Frederick Douglass. You know, power concedes nothing without a demand. Yeah, yeah. Right? Have you ever been to Davos? No. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Um, well, it's a it's a bizarre experience because you recognize so many people, right? And you see so many journalists as well, cozying up to certain elites, right? So you see Thomas Friedman and you see Farid Zakaria, and so that's and, the and New York just, Times columnist and the Fox host, I think. Farid Zakaria, CNN, yeah, yeah, and 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 it just makes you realize how this world works, basically, where they get their ideas from and how how they do their journalism and reporting. They go here every year. And they have these fancy receptions and dinners, etc. I couldn't stand it. It was awful. That's kind of what puts me off. It's the idea of the kind of coziness of people talking to themselves about why they're great. Yeah, yeah. And but you this, think this is, but this is another problem here. Is that what what you really hate about it after a couple of days is that you really they're really nice as well, right? So people often have this view of the global elite as selfish pricks, right? Who only care about money. No, 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 no. That's not the case. They're really nice, you know, and they ask wonderful questions and they, they, at least if you have the right badge, right, they'll check your badge first, obviously. So I, I, came, I came in Davos and I quickly had to run to do my first talk and I didn't have time for registration. So I didn't have my badge yet. And, you know, it's a whole sort of caste system yeah. with different colors, right. etc. that determine how far you get, basically, uh, and which rooms you access, etc. I mean, in a um, way, I kind of admire that because it it's sort of it's like the global economic system, but exactly like you've yeah. you've made it flesh, right? Miniature, in badge form. yeah, yeah. You've, you've kind of like, this is how capitalism works. But I'm gonna, yeah, yeah. So I didn't have my badge yet, and then I had to get through security, and they were like really treating me as some kind of illegal immigrant. And then two hours later, I did have my badge, and it was a good badge, right? A white badge. That's one of the highest colors you can get. And they treated me as royalty, like, oh, come in, Mr. Bregman, and blah, yeah. Blah, blah. Yeah, that was, but if uh, you've only ever had the white badge, you probably don't know what it feels like to have any of the other badges. Yeah, and that's I think. Yeah, but okay, so let's talk. It's it's really a metaphor. Yeah, it is a huge, huge groaning (laughs) snow covered metaphor. But let's talk a bit about the the media. Um, I saw you did some some tweets this week about being on BBC and Mm -hmm. and the kind of the way that their adversarial style and the idea that they want you to kind of have a snap opinion on everything is doing a kind of disservice to to these conversations. Now, I think. Your Davos experience is is one lesson, right? Which is that actually proximity to power can be kind of poisonous for journalists. Mm-hmm. There is a form of kind of regulatory capture where mm-hmm. you kind of go, oh, I can't say anything mean about them. And that applies, yeah. I think, as much to theatre critics as it does to financial journalists. Is You just mm-hmm. kind of start pulling your punches slightly because you think they mean well. They're trying to be nice. Mm-hmm. But also... All the ideas in your book, you know, would face an incredibly hostile media climate in Britain, probably more so than in Holland. Mm-hmm. Um, what, you know, how do you make those cases in, you know, in the teeth of a hostile media if you're an activist? Mm-hmm. Do you try and, you know, do you do what Tony Blair did? You know, do you try and win over the sun and try and get it to support you? Or do you do what Jeremy Corbyn does and say, I don't care about any what any of you think. Mm. 
I'm going to try and talk directly to people through Facebook? Or yeah. is, there, is there a third way? I think there's a third way, actually. Yeah. Um, so, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't try to convince Rupert Murdoch, even though there's a photo of him actually reading my book. Um, uh, I think he wants to read up on the enemy. <laughs> but um, it's a bit of both. So I try to, as I said, I use, try to use a language that appeals to a broader group of people. You know, I really want to convince centrists and moderates and, and say, liberals or whatever uh, that they need to become just a bit more radical and that actually many of these ideas that may seem crazy and utopian, uh, you know, they're, they're quite realistic, actually. And if I would, you know, uh, go in the media and say, well, actually, I'm a communist and I'm a radical and I'm, you know, I am i don't know, I write for a magazine called Jacobin. You have this magazine in the U.S. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just know that I'm not going to be effective in any way. You know, some of my friends will like me and they're like, yeah, you're cool, you're a communist, but it's not going to make a difference. Um I really want to convince people. There's this wonderful book that was written a couple of years ago by Rebecca Solnit called Hope in the Dark, mm. uh, one of my favorite books. And there's one line in there that I always remember. She says, there's a certain kind of activism that cares more about being right than about achieving results. And I don't want to be that kind of activist. Yeah, there was a, uh, I can't remember who wrote it now, but a blog post about something called purity leftism, which said yeah. people who are more concerned, not that oppression should stop, but that they sh- personally shouldn't participate yeah. in it. It's it's a form of, you know, you know, it's all about their identity. It's mm. not about actually changing the world. But I do, you mean, you do talk about the Overton window uh, mm. in, in the book, the idea that there is a kind of space for policies that are deemed to be kind of common sense. And I think that's one of the most, you know, important lessons from your book. You talk about the fact that actually... Fear of being wrong is one thing, but fear of be- people thinking that you're silly is actually a mm-hmm. much, mm-hmm. much bigger thing. And lots of ideas that we now think are very common sense did sound incredibly silly at the time. Mm. It's the most powerful form of censorship, basically. It's more effective than the CIA and the FBI and the D- you know everything they did in the DDR combined. If you make people f- feel that they're stupid, they'll police themselves, right? And you don't have to bother anymore. Yeah, and also ashamed. I, have, I, I do think there is a worrying tendency that there's a kind of you know antibiotic resistance spiral in modern politics of the fact that people who don't feel shame are kind of surviving and prospering because they can't mm-hmm. be you know they all the social mechanisms we have for regulating behavior kind of don't apply to them this is how i think about donald trump right yeah. you kind of go that's a terrible thing to say and in our society we're used to someone then taking that on board and internalizing that criticism yeah. And actually, we've ended up in a situation where, because there's so much shaming going on, the people who've kind of survived are kind of immune to yeah. shaming. Yeah. But yeah. It's a highly unnatural system. Yeah. If you look at the way how hunter-gatherers lived for hundreds of thousands of years, you know, nomadic hunter-gatherers. Um, yeah, as soon as anyone became too arrogant, you know, the whole group would basically crack down on that person. So Trump wouldn't survive for an hour as a hunter-gatherer. But now we have this whole media system where indeed like the more narcissistic you are the more successful you are actually this is what i worry about with some of my own success like how do i stop myself from becoming a monster right (laughs) it's it's a a conversation i've had with lots of people who've ended up becoming very successful because i think as soon as you start getting fans you start getting anti-fans and living in that kind of polarized world where you're both getting huge amounts of criticism and huge yeah. amounts of praise, yeah. often both in very blunt, unnuanced ways, yeah. can warp your personality. Yeah. And you can start thinking of yourself as a martyr if you get kind of yeah. lots of attack. And you can start listening too much to the people who just tell you that everything's great. Yeah. And where's the break on sometimes you might have a terrible idea, yeah. but people see you as an emblem. I mean, I, I'm, 
I, I interviewed Jordan Peterson uh, for GQ, and I think he's a classic example of that. Somebody who, ha- who has been warped by fame into a caricature of the person that they originally were. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, what, what are you doing to stop that happening? And that, that also happens on the left, I think, yeah. is that you just receive so much both praise and abuse. Is that I think the, the only remedy here is to be part of an institution, uh, hmm. to be part of an institution and have colleagues that you, that you know for a longer time, right? And have people around you that can be critical of you and uh, are not always impressed by you. So I'm really glad that I'm 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 part of this journalism platform called the Correspondent. Uh, started a couple of years ago in Holland and is now launching into in in, in English in September. And um, yeah, just got a lot of good colleagues there who uh, yeah don't spare any. How do you say this in English? Spare punches? spare your blushes. Oh yeah, yeah pull their punches. <laughs> pull punches. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's uh, that really helps. yeah interesting because there was a phase about you know maybe all journalists will go towards being kind of one man or one woman bands you know just being uh, you know kind of a brand on your own and yeah. the two lessons for me about you're right institutions are very unfashionable at the moment right mm-hmm. they're, they're supposed to be kind of opaque um, and not responsive not accountable but they do both provide a kind of collective power you know your institution has a you know has ability to protect you that you would not have on your own both in kind of as a journalist. You know, frankly, legal terms apart mm-hmm. from anything else, mm-hmm. and also a powerful check on you going a bit bonkers. Lots of <laughs> lots of journalists, you know, you see, you you don't see how bad their raw copy is, for example, because they're always edited. Yeah, yeah. and I just think it's it's a very big danger sign when people don't like being edited at all. Yeah, because they think their pure vision is is the best, and everyone else is just yeah. tinkering with it because. Yeah. You know, a good editor makes something a thousand. This book had so many editors. Actually, the the original Dutch version is much worse. It was was translated by Elizabeth Manton, and she's a much better writer than I am. So that (laughs) explains like thirty or forty percent of the success. Yeah. Um. Before we leave, what's what's next for you? (laughs) What's next? Well, I'm working on a new book. Um. You know, a lot of the interviews I did about Utopia for Realists ended up in discussions about human nature, right? Because people had the feeling that I had some unrealistic assumptions about humanity in general, you know, that I thought that most people are nice and creative and have this intrinsic motivation. So I said, you know what, I'll write that book uh, about why my vision of human nature is actually realistic. So the book is called Humankind, and uh, uh, it's going to be published next year. Well, thank you very much for joining us. The current book, which you can rush to shops uh, or, you know, your taxpaying outlet of choice, uh, is Utopia for Realists. (laughs) And this was Rutger Bregman. Thank you. Thank you.